Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Parliament has risen. It's not a theological term, American listeners. It doesn't refer to resurrection at the end times. It's just the way the Brits say, gone into summer recess. Parliament has risen, and the new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is driving the bus of state towards the no-deal Brexit cliff edge, looking for all the world like he intends to plunge off. He keeps throwing sacks of money out the window as he rushes along. £1.9 billion in one sack for the National Health Service, another billion or so for a high-speed rail line between Leeds and Manchester, and so on and so on. Tax cuts for all and sundry. The decade of austerity ends with the sudden discovery of money everywhere. Magic. But the biggest bit of magic is this. The Conservatives have been in government now for almost an entire decade. At no time have they had a parliamentary majority of more than 12, and most of the time they were in coalition, either formal or informal. Yet they have exercised power as ruthlessly as if they had been elected by a two-thirds majority of the British electorate, instead of, at most, 40%. They have starved the beast, the great British social safety net of funds, killed the prospect of recovery in the places that suffered most, not just in the crash of 2008, but in the decades of deindustrialization that preceded it. They risked everything on the Brexit referendum, with Prime Minister David Cameron, sanguine at best about Britain's EU membership, making a half-hearted attempt to convince people to vote Remain. Since then, the Tory party, in a mirror of what has happened to the Republicans, has forced out or sidelined all their moderates to become an exclusively hard-right Brexit party. They have done this despite the fact that they lost their parliamentary majority in 2017. Who needs it if you have power and use it ruthlessly? Who needs the country behind you? The Conservatives are helped in this form of minority rule because, first, this is a very peaceable country. People in the UK ask permission to protest. Millions turn out, politely march, and just as politely go home. This is not Hong Kong, after all. Second, the press, most of whose owners are personally pushing the Brexit agenda with all the enthusiasm of the Communist Party pushing the views of the Politburo and the pages of Pravda. The handful of independent organs are, as at top outlets in the U.S., staffed by people who have for too long been isolated inside the Westminster bubble, the U.K. equivalent of inside the Beltway. Their pronouncements about what will or will not happen regarding Brexit are formed unchallenged by a wide range of experience or social background. The conventional wisdom created this way tends not to reflect the complexities of the UK at this moment in its history. One bit of conventional wisdom is that hard Brexit, or any kind of Brexit, will lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. Scotland will hold another referendum on independence, and as for Northern Ireland, it's as good as gone. That's the conventional wisdom. Northern Ireland voted to remain in the EU by 56% to 44%. The Good Friday Agreement will be invoked, a referendum to join the Irish Republic will be held, and Ireland will finally be united. I'm not so sure. I think the Westminster conventional wisdom on this is wrong. I spent most of the 1990s in Northern Ireland. It was my primary beat for NPR. 
I reported the twists and turns of the political process, and that's what it was. It was not a peace process. It was a political process whose end point was creating the conditions for peace. The primary goal for the Republic of Ireland was explained to me on my first reporting trip to the country by the then Irish Foreign Minister, Dick Spring. Make the border meaningless. Five years later, I was in Belfast in 1998 as Holy Thursday drifted into Good Friday. I was in the press tent outside Castle Buildings at Stormont, live on air, doing a two-way conversation with a host for NPR as the midnight deadline arrived and passed. In the middle of the interview, the Reverend Ian Paisley, the most hardline of Irish Protestant political leaders, stormed into the tent and began to rant about the good people of Ulster not standing for this stitch-up. I held the phone up, and he ranted on to NPR listeners. I was outside Castle Buildings the next afternoon when it was finally announced that negotiations had been concluded. A new settlement for Northern Ireland had been agreed, subject to a ratification vote by the people of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland south of the border. I was there in the weeks leading up to the ratification referendum, handily won by the pro-agreement forces. The people who voted against it were the followers of Paisley in his Democratic Unionist Party didn't matter. The vote was won. The British Army watchtowers along the border came down. In the ensuing 21 years, the Irish border has become, as Dick Spring hoped, meaningless. Now, that dividing line has become the key issue holding up Brexit. Because when the UK leaves, the border will have to be the site of customs posts and passport control and other policing apparatus. In negotiations, it was suggested that for customs purposes, the border should be the sea between the islands of Ireland and Great Britain until a new free trade deal could be agreed. This has been rejected by the UK government. Why? Paisley is dead but his party is not. The DUP remains the same inflexible group it has always been. It has been propping up the Conservatives in the UK Parliament for two years. The DUP refuses to countenance moving the border to the Irish Sea for the purpose of customs collection. DUP voters are hardline Brexiters. They no more represent the Northern Ireland majority than the Tories represent the majority in the UK, but they have a similar view about how to wield power. I wonder what price the DUP demanded for their support of the Conservatives beyond no compromise on the Irish border question. Perhaps it is dishonoring the treaty obligations of the Good Friday Agreement, and this is why I question the conventional wisdom Section 1 of the Good Friday Agreement says that Northern Ireland will remain in the UK so long as it is the will of the majority of its people. If there is a vote, and it is no longer the will of the people in Ulster, then the UK government will move legislation to give effect to that wish. But there's no clear mechanism for calling that referendum. Schedule 1 for Section 1 states, The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland may, by order, direct the holding of a poll. The Northern Ireland Secretary will call a referendum if, at any time, it appears likely to him that a majority of those voting would express a wish that Northern Ireland should cease to be part of the United Kingdom. May is an interesting word. May is not must. And if at any time it appears likely to him 
is an interesting phrase. One can imagine a cabinet secretary of a minority government that is propped up by a hardline unionist party and rules as if it has two-thirds of the country behind it, saying for years on end, it doesn't appear likely to me yet, so I won't call a referendum. Beyond that, the other reason to be skeptical of the conventional wisdom that Northern Ireland will be allowed to leave, per the Good Friday Agreement, is this. The UK government's word isn't worth much these days. It's prepared to walk away from its treaty agreements with the EU in a no-deal Brexit, obligations it negotiated in complete openness, and in which it won a special status for itself, and which the EU has done nothing to abrogate. Why wouldn't a Tory government say, well, we're walking away from the Good Friday Agreement as well? My guess is that's a real possibility. The GFA was, as I said, a political agreement that aimed to create the conditions of peace. For most of the last 20 years, peace is what the benighted province of Northern Ireland has known. My sources there have aged, as have I, but they are all in agreement. No one really wants to go back to war, and that will also be a calculation this most calculating minority government has already made when it thinks about the morning after Britain exits the EU. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. While you are there, please please make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.